If you've got your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 7. That's the passage that we're going to be looking at uh, this morning, Mark 7, in our series that we are calling Live It. Uh, we're looking at the gospel of Mark, hearing the story of, of Christ, look at the life of Christ, and talk about the personal implications for us as we follow him. Um, have you ever noticed um, someone who is pretty passionate about what they uh, spouse is important to them or what they esteem, uh, what they believe in, and they're, they're pretty vocal about that, yet when the, you look at their life, there is this, this disconnect between what they, what they say that is important to them or what they believe in and then how they live their life. Um, an example of this from our world, because you know, the media picks up on this real quick. Remember years ago when Mel Gibson was doing the movie Passion, uh, The Passion of Christ? Uh, as a conservative Catholic, he was wanting to, to, to show the, the, the passion of Jesus as he, as he endures the journey to the cross. And there was a lot of skepticism about that movie and would anyone go. And, of course, you know, the, the box office was just, I mean, so many people went and saw that movie. A friend of mine was personally, he wasn't at Christ for all the time, was personally impacted by that movie. Um, and, uh, and, and, and then yet months later, Gibson is, is, is driving and he gets pulled over and he gets a ticket. For, right, for driving under the influence of alcohol. Um, he, he, ends up, he ends up you know, getting, uh, getting a ticket and hitting, the, the media picks it up real quick. And then later on, he's got some issues of fidelity in his relationships. And, um, and people notice that, right? that you, know, you say this is important, but you live your life this way, and, you, and it's, your life is saying something different. There, there was a model recently who wanted to help raise funds for a nonprofit that she said was pretty important to her, the, the the organization uh, is called PETA, the People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. And so she's part of the fundraising for this, this organization. And, and then months later, she was doing another interview, and the, the, the person, the reporter asking the question says, what's one of your favorite pastimes? What do you like to do? And she says, hunting. I love to hunt. This is a, dis- a bit of a disconnect, right? Like, wait a minute, two months ago, you are doing like the PETA thing, and now over here you're shooting animals. Um, and, uh, organizations will do this as well. Virginia Slims, uh, manufacturer of cigarettes, sponsors a tennis tournament called Serve Up a Cure. What are they trying to cure? Cancer. Newsflash, stop selling cigarettes. You'll, ha- you'll cure, right? It's a disconnect, and it really sticks out to us. Harris Casino in Las Vegas in 2006 and 2008, both years, gives $1.2 million to help people overcome their desire to gamble disconnect, right? And, and we could go on and on because it's really easy to see that in organizations. It's pretty simple to see that in the lives of people. Hypocrisy, hypocrisy is this, this external image that we, that we image to others, and yet what's really going on inside of us is something different, and they're, they're clashing, uh, and it feels like you're giving lip service to something, and, and there's this disconnect, and it's so easy to see it in others, and so hard to see it in yourself. And what I want to do today is I want to look at the story in Mark chapter 7. We're going, to, we're going to read the story. There's 23 verses here. And what you're going to see as we read it is Jesus exposing the hypocrisy in the Pharisees. Now, this is kind of a common thing that comes up in Jesus' encounter with the Pharisees. But what, what's going to happen here is the Pharisees have this tradition, this ceremony, that, that it's pretty important to them. It has to do with hand-washing before meals. And it's nothing to do with, with hygiene. We know the value of washing your hands before a meal, right? This is more ceremonial. And 
Jesus, some of Jesus' disciples didn't wash their hands. And so that's like, wait a minute. That's, that's how we do things. And, and it sparked this emotive response from Jesus where he actually says to them, your worship is a farce. Meaning, you, you exalt your traditions and you minimize God's commands. And he describes them as people who honor God with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. And I want to talk about what that looked like in the text, as well as talk about what that could look like for us in January of 2014. So if you've got your Bibles, would you, we don't do this every, too often, but stand with me if you would. I'm going to read these verses, uh, these 23 verses. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Uh, if you didn't bring a Bible, you'll find the Bible in the pew rack in front of you, page uh, 1,585, you'll find this text. Mark 7, verse 1, one day some Pharisees and teachers of religious law arrived from Jerusalem to see Jesus. They noticed that some of his disciples failed to follow the Jewish ritual of hand washing before eating. The Jews, especially the Pharisees, do not eat until they have poured water over their cupped hands as required by their ancient traditions. Similarly, they don't eat anything from the market until they immerse their hands in water. This is but one of many traditions they have clung to, such as their ceremonial washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of religious law asked him, Why don't your disciples follow our age-old tradition? They eat without first performing the hand-washing ceremony. Jesus replied, You hypocrites! Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, for he wrote, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce, for they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. For you ignore God's law and substitute your own tradition. Then he said, you skillfully sidestep God's law in order to hold on to your own tradition. For instance, Moses gave you this law from God. Honor your father and mother, and anyone who speaks disrespectfully of father or mother must be put to death. But you say it's all right for people to say to their parents, sorry, I can't help you, for I have vowed to give to God what I would have given to you. In this way, you let them disregard their needy parents. And so you cancel the word of God in order to hand down your own tradition. And this is only one example among many others. Then Jesus called to the crowd to come and hear. All of you listen, he said, and try to understand. It's not what goes into your body that defiles you. You are defiled by what comes from your heart. Then Jesus went into a house to get away from the crowd, and his disciples asked him what he meant by the parable he had just used. Don't you understand either, he asked? Can't you see that the food you put into your body cannot defile you? Food doesn't go into your heart, but only passes through the stomach and then goes into the sewer. By saying this, he declared that every kind of food is acceptable in God's eyes. And then he added, it is what comes from inside that defiles you. For from within, out of a person's heart, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, Murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, envy, slander, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these vile things come from within. They are what defile you. It's God's holy word. You can be seated. Now, the Pharisees often get a bad rap, so let me just, let me just uh, help you understand where they're coming from. 
Pharisees, if you understand the story of Israel, the story of Israel is that, you know, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. Joshua chapter 24, ask for me in my house, we will serve the Lord. And Joshua told those people who were saying, no, we're going to follow the Lord. Here's what you need to know. He's holy and jealous. Meaning, you got, you, if you want to follow him, you need to live a holy life, a set-apart life. And if, if you, you want to follow him, he's jealous, which means that you're giving him exclusive relationship rights to you. So, and with this comes a blessing. You, you follow me, you're going to be blessed. If you don't follow me, eventually, over time, you're going to go into exile. And God's people did not follow. They turned to idols, and they were exiled. And when they were exiled to Babylon, there was this great period of grieving and mourning. And when they came back to the land, there was this heartfelt concern to make sure we keep the laws of God. We want to make sure that, that we follow God, we don't turn to idols, so that doesn't ever happen to us again. So that we don't ever go in exile. So you have these, these, uh, these focuses on God's law, which is good, but the, the Pharisees arose, they're, they're called set-apart ones, and they, they were making, they're almost like policing these commands and, and sort of elevating the accountability to them. And here's how they're doing this. For example, this whole hand-washing thing, uh, most scholars believe that they looked at Exodus chapter 30, which included regulations for priests. And the priests, before they went into the tabernacle to serve, they had to wash their hands in this basin. And so they came to this conclusion that if it was good for the priests, it was good for the people. And so this, this, this add-on was, was put on God's command. Uh, this add-on was, wash your hands, and that, that pleases God. And, and many things like that kind of built up. We've talked about some of those examples in this series. Um, and this is just one of those examples. Now, they're confused because it appears that Jesus doesn't care about holiness, because his disciples, his followers, aren't washing their hands before they eat. The ceremonial, this public display of piety. So the Pharisees confront him on this. Now Jesus reacts pretty strongly. He gets pretty fired up. And he says, you hypocrites. You, 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 you are like those people Isaiah talked about. You honor God with your lips, but your hearts are far from him. Your worship is a farce because you, you elevate man's commands. You minimize God's commands. And then he uses an example, this whole honoring your father and mother. Here's why he's, used, he's choosing this command. This was a very central and important command. It's, it's one of the big ten, or the ten, the ten commandments, all right? Honor your father and mother. It's the one command that if you obey it, there's a blessing that comes with it. If you disobey it, there's a, a, a negative implication that comes with it. If you honor your father and mother, it will go well with you. And you will enjoy a long life. If you curse your mother and father, you will be executed by your tribe. Exodus chapter 20, verse 12 gives the command. Exodus chapter 21, verse 17 gives us the negative implications of not obeying. And this idea of honoring your father and mother is not, you know, speak kindly of them, respect them. That's included. But really what it has to do is with finances. Because in those days... They didn't have 401ks or IRAs or pension plans. Your kids were your pension plan. Your kids were your retirement. Can I get an amen from anyone in the room? Right? This sounds great. And and so the more kids you had, the more blessed you were, literally. 
Because when you got to that place where you couldn't farm anymore, you couldn't, you couldn't run the business, your kids, it was re- the way you honored your father and mother was you provided for them in, their, in the years when they were older when they couldn't take care of themselves. That's the significant commandment. And what's happening here is that the scribes and the Pharisees have allowed another tradition to trump that one. And the tradition is this. See, some of the younger generation were looking at their bank accounts, so to speak. Looking at their bank accounts and going, I, I, I got pretty good cash reserve there. I've got some assets. And my parents are in need, and I kind of like to have that for myself. And so what, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take a vow. And my vow is I'm going to call my savings account Corbin. Some of your Bible translations use that word, Corbin. It's a a Hebrew word that means devoted to God. It was this sort of loophole of getting around the fifth commandment. Oh, I don't have to take care of mom and dad because, oh man, dad, I could have helped you if you came to me yesterday, but just last night I Corbinized my savings account. It's, it's devoted to God. Now, they're not giving it to the temple. They're not putting it in an offering plate. They're just putting a label on it and saying, it's Corbin. It's devoted to God. And by that, what the, the Pharisees are saying, that's okay because we have to take our vows before God very seriously. And they're using one command to trump another command. Do you see the circular legalism that's beginning to develop here? And so what Jesus does is he exposes, look, here's this one command that my father gave you that comes with positive implications and negative implications, and you're totally blown by it. And you're more concerned about washing your hands before dinner than you are even taking care of your parents. Hypocrite. You honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. And when you see that played out, then it's like, okay, now I'm starting to get this. And then Jesus, I mean, this had to be a bit embarrassing for the Pharisees. They're having this conversation. Jesus leaves that conversation, turns, okay, hey, everybody, listen up. It's not what goes in you that defiles you. What you eat does not go to your heart. goes to your stomach, goes to the sewer. Here's what defiles you, what comes out of your heart, what comes from within. Your, your focus on the external is not impacting the internal. You're doing a great job of of espousing what you believe in, but as you live out your life, what you're doing is you're actually, there's a disconnect between your lips and your hearts. So that's why Jesus will then go on to say, the things that defile you are things like deceit and lustful thoughts and murder and envy and slander, because all those things originate in in our minds or in our hearts, our affections. And and, and that's that's how we're defiled. Our hearts reveal who we are. Now, that's what's going on in this text. And what I want to do in the time I've got left here this morning is I want to go from AD 32-ish and I want, to, I want to bridge the gap and come to January 2014. Because we can read a story like this and say, oh man, Jesus, you're right. Hypocrites, what a disconnect. Can't believe they would do that. And we turn on the news and say, you know, see, you know, models or celebrities, oh, what a disconnect. You know, hypocrites. And then we look at each other and go, Man, you're great, right? Because we can't, it's difficult for us to see hypocrisy in our own lives. So I just want to help us first understand there are systems, religious systems that we engage in that sometimes encourage legalistic thinking or hypocritical thinking. 
And then I want to talk about what this can look like in our life to get our lips and our hearts synced together. Just some practical ways to avoid this trap of, of a farce of worship, of honoring God with our lips, but our hearts, our, our affections, our desire being far from God. So here's what I want to start. First thing I want to, I want to say to you is this. This is how you can bridge the gap. Live life knowing God is pleased with you. The moment that you entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 tells us that you become, you are the righteousness of God. That, that, that's how he sees you. You're holy and you're pleasing. Now, there's tension here because we're going to go through a process of sanctification and become transformed in the image of, of God. But from the very beginning, God is pleased with you and in you. Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says this very clearly. So there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And I'm going to read that again because some of you in the room, this hasn't, this hasn't penetrated yet. This hasn't got in yet. There is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. Let me just talk about the original language here of no. It means none. Zippo. Zero, nada, no, no condemnation. Can you get this? If you are in Christ Jesus, zero condemnation directed at you. Not because of all the wonderful things you've done, but because of what Christ has done. No condemnation. You are loved. You put a smile on God's face. When he hears your name, he says, son, my son or my daughter. He is pleased in you. But what's, what's difficult for us is to be able to receive that kind of grace because it feels so unnatural. And man, I, I need to do something. And, and doing things are great. But, the, but this doing, not from a place of, of God being pleased in me, leads to very, really sick spirituality. Let me just spin this out for us by using some circles. We want to do for God. We, we enter into a relationship with God and we're so excited and we experience grace. It feels so good. And we want to, when we enter heaven, we want to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. All right? So we want, we want, we want to perform. We want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. So we start doing for God and along the way, we, we get recognition and acknowledgement of, and with these feelings of significance. You were working with the kids and someone walked up and said, man, you, got, you have a gift working with kindergartners or you, you served on the camp. I mean, you have, you're a hard worker or you know, whatever, whatever it is. You, people saw something in you and acknowledged it and it felt good and it made you feel significant and you wanted more of that. And, and what it actually does is it, it flips over these false measurements of significance. We begin to measure our acceptability to God by what we do. Kendell and I were in a conversation this week, and uh, uh, Brian asked me, hey, hey, Steve, have you ever led anyone to Christ on an airplane? I said, uh, no, I never have. Um, I kind of like to keep to myself on a plane sleep read do some work he said yeah i i brian said you know, i haven't led anyone to christ on an airplane either but there's this thing among pastors that you know pastors are always leading people to christ on airplanes right i mean i don't care if it's a half hour flight you lead that flight to jesus or something's wrong with you 
there's this false idea that, all right, get on a plane. Who's going to hell? I got to find them, right? <laughs> it's, it's a false measurement. I'm, I'm being, being hyperbolic here, but that's, we, we create these things. See, this is why it's so dangerous for us to do a church survey. Some of you answer those questions, you go, oh, man, I'm only praying for one person in my neighborhood. I should be praying for five. Well, I only read my Bible two times a week, and I, I know the right answer is five, but eh, i got to put two. There's this idea that doing equates to pleasing. Now, there are habits of the heart. There are things that will help us grow, but think about this for a moment. How many people read their Bibles from the birth of the church to the invention of the Gutenberg Press? Zero. How did they grow spiritually? What did they do on Wednesday night? Right? Because there's this idea, if you read your Bible, that's, that's going to please God. Now, I'm not saying don't read your Bible. I, mean, I think it's some, we, we preach from the text. It's a treasure but we get into these false measurement ideas of our spirituality when we say, well, if I read my Bible five times a week, that's significant and that's important and God's pleased with me. He was already pleased with you. He already delights in you. Yes, it's, it's a good thing to do, but that's not a measurement of your standing with God. That was taken care of at the cross. Now you're just growing in your friendship with him. But this doing for God, you know, we, we want to be recognized and feel significant, and we have these false measurements of significance, which we hope, oh, I hope to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Now, let me just show you from Jesus' life why this is so false. Jesus' life, before he's ever done anything, other than laying aside his glory and taking on flesh in the incarnation, he hasn't done anything, he's baptized, and the heavens open up, a dove comes and lands on him, and the Father speaks over him. Before he's gone into the wilderness and fasted, before he's done any miracle, before he's multiplied loaves and fish, before he's done any deliverance ministry, before any of that, the Father says to him, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Is that not fascinating? And then you get to the the next corner here, and along the way at critical junctures, Jesus hears this again, the transfiguration. Peter, James, and John on the mountain. Moses and Elijah, there with Jesus. You know, Peter is like, hey, let's build some tabernacles. And, and the father interrupts him and says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Jesus is hearing this before he's gone to the cross. And what, what that takes us to is this next part of the circle is that Jesus knows his significance to the father. All along the way, he knows his father loves him and is pleased with him. And then in Philippians 2, we're told that after he emptied himself and after the cross, after the empty tomb, after the ascension, he's taken up to the father and he's honored. He's sitting at the right hand of the father. He's honored by the father. Now, this was Jesus' life. From the very beginning, this is my son, I'm whom well pleased. If we look at our lives and we just put the model of Christ over ours, our baptism, and I'm not talking water baptism, I'm talking about our immersion into Christ, our union with Christ. What he says over us is, this is my son or my daughter in whom I'm well pleased. There is therefore now no condemnation for anyone who's in Christ Jesus. You have been saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourself. So you can't, you can't boast about it. 
It's the gracious work of Christ. He's pleased in you, which then leads us to this as part of the circle. The, the Father speaks words at critical times in our life because we talked about this last week. Sometimes the waves are so high, we can't see Jesus. We're trying to put our eyes on Jesus. And at those, those moments, he keeps speaking, he keeps whispering, I like you. I love you. I'm pleased in you. Which then leads to this significance that's rooted in Christ, not in my performance. Which then leads to being honored by the Father. Well done. And that, com- that completes the circle. You see, the, w- the one thing we need to understand is that w- what we'll find ourselves is in a trap if we think doing for God means he's more pleased in us and we create these false measurements of significance. That's what the Pharisees were doing. Jesus, why aren't you washing your hands? And Jesus says, why aren't you obeying the commandments? Right? It's all because they had confused this whole idea of what God thinks about his sons and daughters. So first thing I would say to you is just live life knowing that that God is pleased with you. Here's the second thing I want to say to you to bridge the gap. Learn to discern between personal preference or conviction and biblical truth. Often, see, the Pharisees did this. They confused what was a tradition with what was God's command. So you and I need to discern what's my personal preference, what's our tradition, and what is biblical truth. Now this, let me just share a story from my life. 25, 26 years old, my wife and I are living in Hood River, Oregon. I'm working at a business, I'm an operations manager for a fishing tackle company, and um, the church we're going to has Sunday morning services and a Sunday night service. So Sunday morning services are well attended, Sunday night service not so well attended. But Trina and I are going. Um, and uh, there's like 30 people at the Sunday evening service. And then we hear after going there for a year that the pastor has decided to cancel the Sunday night service. And in me, something just got enraged. How could you stop a Sunday night service? Folks, this is a slippery slope. Sunday night service, that, that's, that's commitment. You get rid of that, that that's... Well, that's taking a step back. Something in me just got, got all emotional and passionate, and, and I wanted to voice my opinion on that. And you know, Now, bear in mind, I wasn't anywhere near applying what I was hearing on Sunday morning. I was getting enough information on Sunday morning. I was educated beyond my level of obedience. I just wanted more information because that, that was spiritual. But I got so passionate, and I, and I told the pastor about my, 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 uh, my opinion, and, and, and he did it anyway. He canceled the Sunday night service. Couldn't believe it. <laughs> now, fast forward five years, and I'm going to the pastoral ministry. I go to my first church. It says Sunday morning service, Sunday night service. Guess what, guess, the, guess what the first thing I changed was when I went to my first church? No Sunday night service. Makes perfect sense when you're the one who's not having to write three sermons during the week, right? It, is, it, was, a, it was a disconnect. I, I equated the more times you go to church, the more pleasing you were to God. And I had some unlearning to do in my own life. Now, here's, I just want to tell you this. I'm going to totally mess with you this morning, all right? I'm going to have us take a quiz. It's going to be true or false. So you got a 50-50 shot on this. I'm going to ask you some questions. 
And you might find, as these questions are being asked, you might feel some passion rising in you. In fact, you might even get angry at me. You might be offended. But take heart. I have worked so hard to offend everyone that you're not alone, okay? This is a community experience for you. But I I, want to expose some of those. I want to help us understand how we sometimes elevate tradition, personal conviction, over biblical truth. And I'm just going to throw a freebie at you, the first one. You'll get this one right, okay? It's irreverent and wrong to smile while on the platform at church. Okay? False. This comes from a story of my own personal experience. Again, I wasn't in pastoral ministry yet. And the church I was going to had these chairs in the back of the platform. And if you were like the senior pastor or you were preaching, you were sat in this chair that had a really high back to it. And then it had descending order depending on you know, your significance in the service. I was on the little, you know, toddler tool, stool, whatever it was. I, and I was, I was in the service that day. I was doing announcements. And, um, and that morning... Because I worked for a fishing tackle company, a buddy of mine who was an associate pastor of the church, we took Dick fishing that morning. And Dick was like 72, never caught a salmon, and that morning caught his first salmon. And he was in church, and we were worshiping, and it was always kind of weird because they were singing, and we were sitting here, kind of listening to people sing as we're sitting on our chairs. And, uh, and there was Dick. He was just worshiping God, and he's, he was facing, he's a big smile on his face. And I, I kind of nudged Mike, said, hey, look at Dick. He's, you know, he's really blessed this morning because he caught a fish. He loves Jesus today. Uh, and, uh, and we were smiling. Later in the week, the senior pastor got a letter from the, a member of the congregation. Steve Fowler and Mike Bala were smiling on the platform, and that's irreverent. That's inappropriate. Now, you laugh. Uh, <laughs> But you weren't in the office with a senior pastor, okay? It was the idea that if, you're, if you smile, it's irreverent. Can you imagine what Easter would be like if that was the case? He is risen. <laughs> there are moments, I mean, really, there, there are holy moments where there should just be silence. There are holy moments where they should, we should be quiet. And then there are moments where we should be ecstatic, we should celebrate. And we need to d- discern what, what's appropriate. So that, that's just a freebie to toss at you. That, that's just some of the things. That some, perhaps that person grew up in a church where, you know, if, if, if you love Jesus, frown. That was maybe their mantra, their vision for their city. But they just kind of grew up, and I'm not saying that to judge them. It's just that, that's just kind of their, that was their preference. That was their understanding. It wasn't biblical truth. Probably a little bit deeper here. Here's the second, here's the second one. Preaching in blue jeans makes God frown. <laughs> Look at Brian Candelo. That is just pathetic. I can't believe he's wearing blue jeans. Now, you're, I know you're looking at me and say, you're wearing jeans. Well, I'm the senior pastor. He, he's the associate pastor. All right? <laughs> Some of us grew up in the tradition. I'm, this was my, my understanding, is that when you went to church, you dressed up. Because that, that's how you showed reverence and honor for God. That was the right thing to do. Some of you came to Christ last week and you were like worried, like, how, do, how am I supposed to dress? And, uh, and, and what we wear doesn't express reverence to God, right? Because that's lip service. Now, the one thing that we're told about dress is to dress modestly. That, yes. But if it's a t-shirt or if it's a button-down collar shirt with a tie, it, 
That does not elevate you or minimize you in God's, God's eyes. That is the traditional stuff that, that we attach value to that God doesn't. Because God looks at the heart, right? Now, I'm, you have your convictions and that, that, that's fine. In fact, I spoke on this. If you want to dig deeper into this, go back under our podcast. Look at our Romans series. I did a talk called Meat, Merlot, or Mushrooms, and I just talked about that whole idea of our, the, the disputable matters. And there's, there are biblical ways to handle our differences. But this, this is false. I mean, it, it doesn't matter how you dress, as long as you dress modestly. Here's the, here's the next one. Pallets are offensive to God and cheap in worship. <laughs> I'm just saying, come on, everyone knows this. <laughs> Here's the deal. Yeah, I actually, I, um, if, you've, if you've talked to me, I'm not talking about you, okay? If you've written an email and you put your name at the bottom, I'm not talking about you. I, I, I literally got an unsigned letter like months ago. We were in our small group and we were complaining about the pallets. And they disturb us in our worship. I was like, ding, 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 radar goes up. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Complaining in your small group, okay. Pallets, not okay. Do you see the disconnect? That worship somehow isn't impacted by complaining. No, no, no. How, how big of a deal was grumbling and complaining in the wilderness for the children of Israel? Now, I'm not saying, I mean, what I'm trying to say is that, that you, there's no evil or good quality to the pallets. And I, I, I get, you know, it, it's, it's like art. You, ever go, you go to a museum and you look at some painting and go, I don't get it. Some of you, you walk in and say, I don't get it. And some of you are like, oh, I love the pallets. And I remember, the, you know, I'll be honest. The first time I walked in here and I saw the pallets, I was like, okay, that, that, that's weird. But, you know, it was Jeff Brown's idea anyway. And so <laughs> I, just, I just rolled with it. And, uh... Dude, I can't believe you're wearing jeans. I really, uh... <laughs> uh, someone's going to get hurt, dude. Take that back with you. <laughs> the reality is, is that when there's things that we aren't used to or something is done, there's something emotive that happens to us. And we respond to it and we confuse personal preference with biblical truth. All right? We, we, so we need to learn the difference between the two. So that one's false. Here's the next one for you. Smoking cigarettes is sinful. I grew up being taught that. Here's why. Because Paul writes to the church in Corinthians and says that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So you would never damage your body because you're damaging the temple of the Holy Spirit. And smoking is very unhealthy, and, and it, so it, it's, it's sinful. Cheeseburgers, those are okay. But cigarettes... Can you, can you see how we've, we've, we've taken certain habits and said, ah, oh, yeah, that, that's, that's bad. That, you know, this, we overlook other ones. Now, we all understand that, that smoking can, can do damage to your body. And, and I know there are perhaps many people in this room who are trying to quit, and it's an anguishing journey for you. But don't connect it to your ability to please God. Okay? If you smoke and you want to quit, Great. Bless you on that journey. But it has no impact on God's ability to accept you. You are loved by God. 
And, 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 and don't let anyone put those kind of false measurements on you. And, and we do that. I'm just picking out one. We could just go down the row here. But this is why we need to discern between what is biblical truth and what is personal preference. Here's the next one for you. Certain types of songs are more pleasing to God than others. Okay, now I got from preaching the meddling, right? It's really fascinating because you can be in a church service and you have someone from the younger generation who come to you and say, man, why do we sing those old songs? I, those words, I mean, I don't even know what they mean. And by the way, what, what is it? what's an Ebenezer, right? Well, you should try reading 1 Samuel. It's a good book. Um, tells a story. There's meaning to it. And then you'll, you'll talk to some of the older generation and they say, I can't believe we sing like those 7-Eleven songs. Seven words, you repeat them 11 times, okay? <laughs> it's, just, it's just so shallow. I mean, I don't... And, and then what we do is we attach spiritual value to our preference. <laughs> you, you know, here's the beauty of, of who we are as a church. We're just one form of expression in this city. There are a lot of wonderful churches in Salem Alliance. I mean, in Salem. In Salem. Uh, and they're all here. Uh, now, you know we have got great relationships with the pastors in our city. And, and the reality is, is that you know, we could go plant a church that just has one style to it where everyone's happy. I don't think it's healthy. I think having multiple generations teaches us how to love one another, how to prefer one another above yourself. I think that's healthy. Now, I'm not saying that if there's a, a, a church plan that's just for young people, that's wrong, or just for older people, that, that's, I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying there's a unique gift God has given to us. So what we don't want to do is say, old songs bad, good songs good, or good songs bad, old songs good. We, we want to make sure that we can, you know, there, we can, if you're a worshiper, you will find a way to worship. Okay. I think last, last, last uh, test here. Pastors should only say things I like. <laughs> Just thought I'd throw that up there. When we confuse personal conviction with biblical truth, we create false measurements of what God is pleased by, which leads us to a place where we honor God with our lips and our hearts are far from him. There's the disconnect that takes place. Two more, real quickly. Here's, oh, can, we put that one, uh, uh, can you put that one quote by Augustine? Thanks, Jared. Here's the deal. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, love. I, I love how Augustine put that. Okay, two more things real quickly. Listen to yourself. Jesus said, out of the fullness of the heart, mouth speaks. If you want to know what your heart looks like, just listen to yourself talk. Read the emails you've written. If you have a close friend, ask them for permission to say, when, when you talk, ask for permission to say, I see your heart. Because your words reveal your heart. And you get a real clear understanding of what's going on there. Last one is this. Grow in your desire and affection for Jesus. There is always more growth and desire that can be cultivated in our hearts. Paul, in, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, says, I want to know Christ. He knew Christ, but he wanted to know Christ and know more. He wanted to experience the power of the resurrection and suffer with Christ. I want to know Christ. 
And let me just wrap up by saying this, that you know, when I was working in Hood River, that fish and tackle company, after work one day, I'm talking with a fellow believer. His name was Don Griffin, and Don and I were talking, and he was talking about God, but he was, he was talking about Jesus. He kept saying, you know, Jesus and I were, were, I was talking to Jesus, and Jesus was saying to me, and as, the more I listened to him talk, the more evident it became in my life that there was this disconnect. He had a relationship with Jesus, I had a strong belief in the idea of God. I had elevated what it looks like to be in relationship, and I needed to cultivate a burning heart for Jesus. And friends, you got into this journey because of Jesus Christ. Never, ever let anything get in the way of you growing in that desire, in that relationship, that friendship with Jesus Christ. Pray and ask for more affection for the one who's called the desire of all nations. May our hearts burn for him and him alone so that our lips and our hearts can be in unison and our God can be honored.